I am so ready to hit the reset button on 2020, and I can't find it yet. Um, let me tell you what 2020 has done now in my life. I had vacation plans, and those got shot out of the saddle. The Texas Rangers have built a brand new ballpark. I have the new baby blue hats that they have for Sunday games, and I can't go watch the Rangers play in their brand new stadium. This week, the State Fair of Texas was canceled, and now you're messing with my corny dog. And now you're talking about college football maybe being postponed now. Now, that's when coronavirus gets really, really serious. I'm ready to hit the reset button on 2020. But I know we're going to get back to normal. I know that normalcy will come back again. And uh, we'll look back hopefully on 2020 like we looked at Y2K. But with reset buttons, sometimes there's bigger reset buttons in our life. And you think, gosh, I wish there was a reset button. Maybe it's the words that were spoken out of turn and you wish you could take those words back and put them back into your mouth. Maybe it's the opportunities missed that you wish that you had had a second chance at. Maybe it's a bridge that was burned and you wish you had a second chance to rebuild that bridge. Maybe it's a relationship that's wrecked that you wish you could restore. Maybe it's a temptation that you gave into that you wish you had never gone there. I wish I could go back in time and hit a reset button in my life, and I know in most of your lives as well, and that if we could go back and hit that reset button and get a do-over, gosh, life would be great. Well, here's the amazing, wonderful, fantastic news that you've just sung about and that we're going to talk about, is that there is a reset button in life. We've been looking, uh, this is our fifth Sunday, looking at the miracles of Jesus. Once again, I just want to say thanks to Pastor Wayne for entrusting me with uh, this pulpit. Gosh, this has been so much fun. And again, I love preaching in my own church. We looked at five different locations, looked at five different miracles. The first week, we looked at the authority and the power of Jesus. And the locations for that, we were in Nazareth and we were in Capernaum. Then the next week, we looked at how Jesus, the Son of God, is equal to God the Father in essence, in work, in power, in judgment, and in honor. And for that one, we were at the Pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. The next week, we looked at the compassion of Jesus and how we said that Jesus is the visible manifestation of the compassion of God. And we looked at that in the city of Magdala. And then last week... The idea that when Jesus reveals himself to us, you can't help but shine that revelation. And that took place at the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. This week, we're going to be in John chapter 21. And we're going to talk about grace. And here's your big idea. If you don't remember anything else, for the next 30 minutes, it is this. Grace of Jesus is the reset button in life. The grace of Jesus is the reset button in life. Now, grace, this is one of those words that we throw out a lot. And I could stand up here and I could give you a theological definition for grace. In the Old Testament, it was this idea of hesed, 
this idea of the loving kindness that you show to someone else who is not in any way able to repay for that loving kindness. In the New Testament, grace is this idea of undeserved favor that you show to someone. But those are words. Grace is something you have to experience. And the best way to teach about grace is to tell a story about grace. Uh, Life-changing book in my life, um, and many of you have read it. If you haven't read it, it's one to put on your shelf. It's Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And I want to read just a portion of what Philip Yancey has said about this, about grace. Philip, he says, Jesus talked a lot about grace, but mainly through stories. I remember once being stuck at the Los Angeles airport and arriving 58 minutes late at the car rental desk. I walked up in kind of a bad mood, put the keys down, and I said, how much do I owe? The woman said, nothing. You're all clear. But I said, I was late, and there must be some type of penalty. But she smiled, and she said, yes, but there's a one-hour grace period. So I asked her, oh, really? So what is grace? And she said, I don't know. And then Philip Yancey puts in parentheses, I guess they don't cover this in rental car training class. I guess what it means is that even though you were supposed to pay, you don't. That's a pretty good place to start for a definition. What we're going to see in John chapter 21 is that we're going to see grace personified and how grace is the reset button in life. John chapter 21, verse 1 says, after this. Well, what does that mean? This is at the very end of the book of John. This is sometime in a 40-day period after Easter Sunday, the very first experience of the resurrection. And the disciples have been through so much. Think about what happened that even in that one week. It started off with a triumphal entry and this idea about the kingdom. But then the betrayal of one of their own, their leader being arrested, the denial of Jesus by their own leader, Peter, the crucifixion, the grief over that, but then the glorious resurrection. All of that is encompassed with after this. So for 40 days after Jesus had, had been raised, he appeared to the disciples in various times and in various locations. So Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now, we've been talking all along about the Sea of Galilee. John is the last of the four Gospels, and so he is writing very late in the first century. The Romans renamed most of the things in Israel, and they renamed the Sea of Galilee to the Sea of Tiberias in honor of Tiberius Caesar. So he's using the Roman name, same location. And he, Jesus, revealed himself in this way. So let me show you where we're going to be today. So we're back at the Sea of Galilee and some of the locations that we've talked about. We've talked about Capernaum, and we said how this was the home base for Jesus. Jesus was born in, I mean, not born, but he was, grew up here in Nazareth. We talked about Magdala. We talked about how Jesus traveled in a boat over to this side. We're going to be right here, two miles outside of Capernaum in a place called Taptha. Now, let me explain Taptha. Taptha was not a big city. Taptha was the sweet fishing spot 
where all of the fishermen from Capernaum would go and fish. Well, who are some of the fishermen from Capernaum? Well, Peter, James, and John. And they're going to be the folks who are going to be in our story today. So the fishermen in Capernaum didn't fish right off of Capernaum. They would float two miles to the west, and they would come to this very nice fishing spot. Why was this a nice fishing spot? Well, it was because there were seven springs that flowed into the Sea of Galilee from this spot. The springs, the water that was there was just a little bit warmer than the water that was in the Sea of Galilee. Warmer water, cooler water mixing together, that meant algae and fish love algae. And so this was the place where you would be able to find the best fishing. Now, tradition tells us that Peter... James and John were first called to be Jesus's disciples three years earlier on this very same shore. They were very familiar with this. And so this is going to be a place where a lot of the action took place because this was the hot spot where the fishermen fished. In this area, there are two Byzantine era churches. One of them is this church right here. This is called the Church of the Multiplication of the Loaves and the Fishes. History is mixed on this, but they got the church here first, so they get to claim the miracle. But the tradition says that the miracle of the multiplication of the five, of feeding of the 5,000 with the loaves and the fishes took place in this church. Or took place in this area where this church was built. The original church was built around 350 AD. It was built, replaced by a larger church in about 450 AD. And in this church that was around 450 AD, there was this beautiful mosaic tile floor that represented the flora and the fauna of the area. Well, unfortunately, this church from 450 BC was destroyed around 600 or so AD, and this floor was covered. And it was left undiscovered until 19. 32, when they built the new church on top of it, and they incorporated the original mosaic floor. So when you go there today, you still see this mosaic floor from 400 AD. The centerpiece of this church is this rock. And tradition says this is the rock where Jesus stood when he blessed the loaves and the fishes. So literally, the altar stands on the rock where Jesus stood. But I also want you to see the mosaic that's in front of this. I have an uh, image of this actually in my office. Uh, you'll notice that the fish have two dorsal fins. Well, there's just a little bit of humor here. Uh, there's no fish in the Sea of Galilee that have two dorsal fins. So we know the artist A was not a fisherman and B probably wasn't from the area originally. But this church is located right there in that cove, right there where those springs are, and you can see it today. Then you can just walk 200 yards, and you see a second church. This church is called the Primacy of St. Peter. The original church, again, was built probably 3rd, 4th century there was a second church that was built in the ninth century. That church was destroyed. And then this church was built in the 1980s. There's a rock ledge that's going to be very important in our story today because tradition says this is the ledge where Jesus stood when he called out to the disciples. And the church, once again, is literally built on the rock. Do you 
I mean, imagine preaching there on Sundays. The rock there, the Latin term for that is the table of Christ. And the original church that was built there, uh, that was destroyed earlier, the name of the church was called the Place of the Coals. These are all going to be very important things in our story today. I'm saying up a lot of things, so when we jump into our text, well, let me show you one more thing. Our story is going to take place today in a fishing boat. And this is a model of what a first century fishing boat would have looked like. And show you a little closer view of what a first century uh, fishing boat would have looked like. Now, how do we know what a first century fishing boat would look like? Well, guess what? We have found a first century fishing boat. This was found in the area of Taptha, where we're talking about. Uh, this was found in the 1980s, around 1986, after a two-year drought in the Sea of Galilee, and the waters had receded far enough down that they found this boat buried in the mud. It took them 11 days to get the boat out of the mud and get it to shore. It took them nine years to preserve the wood. And then in the year 2000, they put it on public display. And you can go today, it's located between Taptha, our sweet fishing spot, and the town of Magdala. It is around 26 feet long, it's seven feet wide, and it is four feet deep. It would have a crew of five, and it could carry up to 15 people. So I've shown you a church where there was the feeding of the 5,000. I've shown you a church where it talks about the primacy of Peter. And we're going to talk about what that means. And I've shown you a fishing boat. Let's put everything together. John chapter 21, verses 2 and 3. It says, Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Canaan of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing. Simon Peter said to them, we're coming with you, they told them. And they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Well, let's talk about who's in the boat. We have a boat full of fishermen who were not able to catch fish that night. Zebedee's sons, that's John and James. Their dad was called Zebedee. John in John's uh, gospel never names himself. So it's always the disciple Jesus loved or it's the son of Zebedee. But this was John and James. John and James are seen in the boat and they have some regrets about words that were spoken. Prior to the last supper, James and John arrogantly went to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, we want to be the most powerful people in your new kingdom. And we want to sit at your right and at your left hand on the throne in the kingdom of heaven. And every other disciple heard that and they were indignant. It says in Matthew's gospel that actually their mother, their mother went to Jesus and made the request. That is like the ultimate helicopter parent if I've ever heard one in my life. Can you imagine James and John now on this side of the cross looking back and going, what in the world were we thinking? And how I wish we could take those words back and get a do-over and press the reset button. That's the sons of Zebedee. Nathaniel from Canaan of Galilee. Nathaniel, we know his story in John chapter 1. He's from Canaan. That is four miles from Nazareth. 
Don't know if they had high school football rivalry or something like that. But the very first thing Nathaniel said in John chapter 1, when he heard about Jesus of Nazareth, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Terrible first impression. And he thinks back, how I wish I could go back in time and have another chance to make a better first impression. And take the words back and hit the reset button again. Thomas called the twin. You know Thomas as doubting Thomas. And Thomas gets a bad rap. Let's just be honest. They all bring baggage, but he gets the bad rap. But here's what happened in Thomas's case. After the crucifixion, when Jesus appears to the 12 disciples in, uh, in the upper room, Thomas wasn't there. And the other disciples say, we've seen Jesus. And he's like, I don't believe it. And unless I can see the nail prints, unless I can actually put my fingers in the nail prints, until I can put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And the next week, Jesus shows up and Thomas is in the room. And Thomas does believe. But Thomas, in his mind, keeps going back. Why did I doubt I knew Jesus could do this. Why did I doubt? I wish I could go back in time and hit the reset button again. Then there's Simon Peter. Simon Peter is always listed as the de facto leader. He is the man of action, but he's also the man in the boat that probably has the biggest regret of all. You see, on Thursday night before the crucifixion, Peter boldly proclaims to Jesus, even if all these other disciples desert you, I will never desert you. And Jesus, I would even die for you. They show up at the Garden of Gethsemane. The um, guards who are going to come to arrest Jesus show up. Peter brandishes a sword. Jesus tells them to put the sword away. Peter and John follow Jesus as he's taken to the high priest home. And they're not there as bold defenders of Jesus. They are there as scared eyewitnesses. John, because of his relationships, is actually able to get inside the house of the high priest while Peter stands outside warming himself in front of a charcoal fire. And three times someone approaches Peter to ask him about Jesus. And three times... Three times, Peter denies Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, I wish I could go back and have a do-over. I wish I could go back and take back the words I said that night. I wish there was a reset button. I failed you, Jesus. Verses four through six. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples, they didn't know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast your net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. And so they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. Remember, I showed you that church, it's called the primacy of Peter, and there's a rock that's there. And on that edge of that rock, tradition says that is where Jesus was standing as he's calling out to the disciples. Now, they don't recognize him because it's daybreak. And it's also, we know a little bit later that they're about 100 yards off, and they see this man, and he's saying, friends, 
Now that word friends, that's um, an okay translation, but actually a better translation would be lads, little boys. It actually was a term of affection. And here's Jesus on the shore calling out to them, cast on the right side. These are professional fishermen. They're going, what is this guy on the shore? Why is he telling us to cast on the right side? Maybe he sees a school of fish that we don't see. But they do it. And there's so many fish. And remember, I told you, this very shoreline possibly could have been where these same disciples three years earlier had been called with a very similar miracle of a fish cast that was too heavy to bring onto the boat. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied up his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about 100 yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. We see personalities of John and we see personalities of Peter. John is always a man of quick observation. And Peter is always a man of quick action. And Peter has learned after three years, I always need to trust John. We talked about light bulb moments last week and that how there's light bulb moments that happen in your life. This was a light bulb moment. John, who three years earlier had been in a boat on that very same spot and had had the same experience of someone shouting on the shore about fishing and they put the net in and they caught the fish. Immediately, John's like, this has got to be Jesus. And immediately, Peter, as a man of action, says that I have got to go see this man. There is no reluctancy on Peter's part at all. That's going to be very important in what we're getting ready to see. Peter couldn't wait to see Jesus. And so he hurls himself into the sea. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up, hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And even though there were so many, the net was not torn. We know a fisherman's telling us this story because a fisherman always knows how many fish they've caught. It's 153 fish, that's what they've caught. Remember, I told you there's a church called the Church of the Multiplication of the Loaves and the Fishes that possibly could have been at that same location. So the last time these disciples had had bread and fish with Jesus had been in this location where Jesus had multiplied the bread and the fish. The last meal that these men had had with Jesus was the last supper. Can you imagine the memories starting coming through their mind? The last time Peter had had an experience with a charcoal fire had been when he denied Jesus and the sense of smell brought back all of these memories. And they're all sitting there. And it's just like old times. This is, how many meals had they had with Jesus over three years? And they're coming back and going, this feels great. This is just like it used to be. Come, have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. We know Jesus appeared at least seven times during this 40-day period. But again, they're sitting there going, this is just like it used to be. 
when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Oh, yes, Lord. He said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. Now, this is after breakfast. We do not know if this was a private conversation or not. It could have been that they're sitting around the campfire lounging around and Jesus is going to have this conversation with Peter and with the other disciples. We know at least John heard the conversation. Now, if you have ever heard a sermon preached on this passage, you probably have had a preacher tell you that there's two loves that are mentioned in here. There is agape, that is the love that Jesus is asking of Peter. And then there is phileo, which is the love that Peter responds with. Agape is self-sacrificing love. Phileo is brotherly affection. Before we go there, I just want to give two very quick clarifications. Number one is that John, as a writer, he likes mixing in a bunch of words. And we're going to see even in here, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, tend my sheep. And he's going to just interchange words. And we see other places in the gospel where John sometimes will interplay, intertwine different words. The second thing is, this might be a shocker for you, is that Jesus and Peter probably didn't have this conversation in Greek. The Bible's written in Greek. Greek is the language of commerce. But if you're a fisherman on the shore, you're speaking Aramaic or you're speaking Hebrew. In Aramaic, there's only one word for love. And in Hebrew, there's only one word for love. So don't put too much weight into the two types of words. But I will say this. See, Peter, on the night he denied Jesus, he boldly proclaimed his love. Jesus, I love you more than these other men and I would die for you, Jesus. Now, when Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me with a self-sacrificial love? Peter's wiser. Peter's more humble. And he says, I can love you with affection, Jesus, but I don't know if I can promote a love that's superior to these men who I've lived with for the last three years. And see, that's the type of person that Jesus can use. We're going to see three times, Simon Peter, do you love me? This idea of Simon Peter. Peter's called Simon Peter four times in the scriptures. When he's called to be a disciple, when he confesses Christ at Caesarea Philippi, when he fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, and here. You know, it's kind of like when your mama calls you by your full name, you know something important's getting ready to come. Same type of thing. When Jesus calls Simon Peter the full name, something important is getting ready to come. Do you love me? Oh, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And here's what, Peter, here's what Jesus says. Peter, I'm putting you back in charge of my sheep. This is not condemnation of Peter. Peter, I still want to use you. I know you denied me, but Peter, here's the reset button. Let's start over and I'm so ready to put you back to work. Second time, he's asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Oh, yes, Lord. He said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep. 
he told him. And then he asked him a third time, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Denial, denial, denial. Regret, regret, regret. Reset, reset, reset. Grace, grace, grace. Peter goes back and says, oh, Jesus, I wish I could have that night over again. And Jesus says, we're going to have that night over again. And you get to reset the button again. Jesus, I failed you as a leader. I'm not worthy to be your leader. Oh, Peter, there's no one else I'd trust my sheep with than you. I'm ready for you to get back in the saddle and take care of my sheep. Verses 18 and 19, Jesus continues. He says, truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk where you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after this, he told him, follow me. See, Peter, on the night that he denied Jesus three times, he denial, denial, denial. And on that same night, he said, Jesus, I would die for you. That was the words of a cocky young leader. Now, three years later, from this journey with Jesus, after he originally followed him, he's now starting to get it. And he's a little bit wiser and he's a little bit more mature now than he was even a couple of weeks prior. And Jesus says to him, Peter, you are going to die for me. But it's not going to be on your terms. It's going to be on my terms. Tradition says that in 69 AD that Peter died the death of a martyr for gloriously proclaiming the grace of Jesus Christ. Peter felt like he was so unworthy of a martyr's death of crucifixion that he asked the Roman executioners to crucify him upside down because he was not worthy. See, prior on that Thursday night, Peter thought he was worthy. Now he knows there's no way that I'm worthy, but he is still used because of the grace. Again, three years ago, as Peter was on that same boat, possibly, in that same shoreline, he had heard, follow me. And Jesus comes back to him again and says, I want you, Peter, come and follow me. We all got baggage. Every one of us has baggage. That was a boat full of baggage floating on the sea that night. Let me put some names to some of your baggage. There's hurts. There's regrets and there's skeletons. You know, there's hurts in some of your lives. I do not know your life story, but I guarantee there are people in this room and there were people in your past who did unspeakable, terrible things to you. And you feel like you are worthless. You feel like you have been discarded. Yet Jesus still loves you 
And Jesus can still use you. There's some of you in this room who have regrets. You're saying, I wish I had not done what I had done. I wish that I could take it back. I wish I had not burned this relationship. Whatever the case may be with the regrets. And you just think, Jesus can't use me. Oh my goodness, he absolutely can use you. And you have skeletons in your closet that no one knows about, that you hide because you're too ashamed of it. And we're going to talk about that actually those skeletons are actually your greatest opportunity to minister to other people. So with these three, with these three things, very quickly, very, uh, three very short applications. Number one, never let your past keep you from Jesus. You do not have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. Jesus takes you just as you are. Never let your past, as dark as it may be, as filthy as it may be, do not let your past keep you from Jesus. Jesus gives you a reset button of grace. Come to Jesus as you are. Number two, never let your past keep you from serving Jesus. See, Jesus could never use somebody like me, and you can insert whatever you want to insert on those things. That's absolutely who Jesus uses. Jesus uses this boat full of regrets for incredible ministry. You sit here today because of these men and their regrets that were in the boat and that Jesus didn't give up on them. And Jesus doesn't give up on you. Don't let your past keep you from Jesus. Don't let your past keep you from serving Jesus. And then here's the final thing. It's your past that is your entry to the greatest ministry in other people's lives. Let me give you some examples with this because again, this is so counterintuitive. You see, out of the struggles that you have in your life, do you know what you get to do? You get to minister to people who are going through those exact same struggles. We all got baggage, welcome to the club. But you get an opportunity out of your own suffering and your own struggles to minister to people who are going through the exact same thing because you're able to sit down with a person that I can't and you're able to say, I know exactly what it's like to be there because I've been there and I had an opportunity to hit the reset button. It might be a struggle. It might be grief. It might be an addiction. It might be loss. It might be damage from the past, whatever that is you have the opportunity to hit the reset button and you have the opportunity to have incredible ministry in other people's lives because of the grace that comes through you out of that pain. See, it's the wounded healer that is the one who can heal and you have that opportunity. Grace is the reset button in life. As we wrap up our sermon series, one theme I hope you've seen in all five of these illustrations is that it's Jesus who shows up. There's no one in any of our stories who is looking for Jesus. It's Jesus who shows up. It's Jesus who finds us. And see, when Jesus shows up and when Jesus finds us, that's what makes all the difference. And when Jesus shows up and when Jesus finds us, that's when we get to hit the reset button. Join me in prayer.
Jesus, thank you for seeking us when we were not seeking you. Jesus, thank you for your grace, your marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Jesus, thank you for still using us despite all of our faults, despite all of our failings, despite all of our shortcomings. Jesus, we bring to you our struggles. Jesus, we bring to you our pain. Jesus, we bring to you our loss. Jesus, we bring to you our regrets. Jesus, your grace covers us. It embraces us. It empowers us. And may we never take your grace for granted. Amen.